Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word to us this morning, coming from your, your scriptures that comes direct into our, into our hearts. I pray, Father, that, that you might soften our hearts, that you might penetrate our hearts, that you might come to us this morning where we are and where we're at and lift us up and draw us back to yourself. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we've been, Derek's been doing a series and it's called I Love the Father, uh, meaning I love God the Father. And um, um, we've kind of been looking at the aspect of what it means to have God as our Father. And um, my hope is certainly is that if we work through these sermons and Bible studies that our love for the Father would grow. Um, and as Derek and Matt have said in the previous couple of weeks, our, our Father God is a loving Father who loves each of us dearly. Amen. Today we're looking at the aspect of God as a Father who has always planned to make a family. God the Father and his children. I wonder what family means to you. Last month, our family had a reunion. And as I was telling people about this reunion, a lot of people would say, oh yeah, so how did that, how did that go? Like, maybe family reunions don't go so well. Uh, and, and actually, it went really well. Probably because the ones that wanted to come came and they were all mates. But, you know, there's always members of the family, like there's black sheep, isn't there? And there's little dangly, itchy branches with thorns on them and that. And, and in the families, you know, we expect more. We're all brothers. We expect more of each other. And we have disappointments. And it's terrible. Even church families can be difficult. I think the thing with families is there's an expectation within family relationships that are not there outside the family. So this morning I realised that for some of you, maybe this topic of family is a very difficult one. You might come from a family where relationships were abused, maybe you were abused, where trust was misplaced, maybe as a spouse or as a child. So when I talk about God as the creator of family, this could be a struggle. But what I want to get across this morning is that God is a good father who loves his children. And to be part of that family is a really glorious thing. So as Christians, Christians believe the Bible is the word of God. And in the very beginning of the Bible, it talks about how God brought us into being and how he created us and how beautiful and good it was. We were made to be just like God. The Bible says, so God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So God made man with the same pure character as himself. He made man for relationship. He said it was not good for the man to live alone. 
Genesis says, so he formed the man, the woman, out of man's rib. The relationship of reliance and trust was created between man and woman, which mirrors the perfect loving relationship between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Now when we talk about God as our Father, it would be wrong to think that a mother figure is missing. God made Adam, God made Adam in God's image. Then God took a rib from Adam and made the woman. So can you see how both men and woman come from the character and nature of God? Therefore, it stands to reason that God our Father is the full parent, a father and mother, so to speak. And we can find this in scriptures in Isaiah 66, 13. It says, as a mother comforts a child, so I will comfort you. The attributes of a father and mother come from God our Father. Does that make sense? So, God has always been in relationship, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And from the beginning, he's always been about building a family. So God made man and woman. But, you know, before they had the chance to have kids, they were a bit disobedient to God. In fact, do you know how early it was in the scheme of things that they were disobedient? Eve never even had her name. She was just referred to as the woman. No slur on woman, women. Eve was named after the fall. Now, as, as many of you will know, the sin of Adam and Eve is way more significant than just picking the wrong piece of fruit off the wrong tree. Their sin was to say to the almighty God, the creator, who created everything, including them, We've got some information that we gained from a snake. That you are a liar. And we plan to test this out. You say that what you have is best for us, but we think different. So they ate the fruit. Because they thought the fruit would give them wisdom that really would make God obsolete. They wouldn't need him. Genesis 3.6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Can you see the dumbness of this situation? Can you see how really, really silly this is? God who made and designed everything, including the tree of knowledge and its fruit, and they thought that they could take a piece of fruit and it would make them smarter than God. <laughs> she also gave some to her husband who ate it. And then both of their eyes were opened, it says, and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They immediately felt shame and they hid from God. That's what sin does. 
They feel shame. They lost their intimacy with God. And God banished them from the garden. He also prevented them forever eating another tree. And it's called the tree of life. They had no hope and no ability to have a relationship with God, the Father, because they had rejected his fatherhood. They were lost. Genesis 3.24 says, After he drove the man out, and placed, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That's a really bad situation for Adam and Eve. They were banished from the presence of God with no way of ever getting back. What makes me say this? John 5, 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. See, the Father and the Son are the only, are the only beings that have life in themselves. And this verse is really deep if you look into it. It really makes you think. God is the only one who's the source of life and because Adam rejected the only source of life, God drives him out of the garden and guards the tree of life so that no one can get to it, not even any of his descendants. The source of life's been cut off from Adam and there's a guard to make sure he can't find it. Not just can't find the tree, but he can't even find the way to the tree. This is the definition of lost. It's a terrible point in history when all of mankind is lost from God, the only source of life. But do not despair. The Apostle Luke says that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. I have this imagery of Jesus coming to look for his people. These people that are stricken with shame and hiding in the garden, he finds them and he saves them. And all of heaven celebrates the salvation of every single one of them. So in Luke chapter 15, if you want to um, turn to that, if you've got your Bibles here, uh, Jesus tells three stories about the lost, actually. There's a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And after each one, there's a celebration. This is how God now makes his family. Jesus seeks and saves each one. And then he keeps us. I want to look today into the lost son or the prodigal son, as some is more commonly known. And, and people do sometimes struggle with the term prodigal because prodigal means lavish, extravagant. And yes, the son was lavish and extravagant as he went off spending willy-nilly. But there's also an aspect of lavishness and extravagance of the father as he redeems him. Just keep that in mind as we read. Jesus tells of an earthly family situation. A man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. This is no small thing to do. If you've got a whole lot of property and a whole lot of cattle and a whole lot of assets, 
you, you, you got to sell some stuff. You, it's, it's no small thing. As we read this parable, we're meant to understand that the father in the story represents God. And the sons represent us. Now in the culture of that day, the eldest son would be entitled to a double portion of all the rest. If you had four sons, the eldest son gets, you divide it by four, but just double it for the first one. So you divide it by five, he gets double, right? So with two sons, the eldest son would, be in, it would have been entitled to two thirds, the younger son one third. That would have been the culture of the day. After the father died. But here, the younger son wants his share now. Now, you can just let your, your mind wonder about what that guy's issues might have been, what that family situation might have been, how he was reacting to what was going on around him. He's obviously not happy with life as how it was going within the family, and he wanted out. Dad, cut out my share now so I can leave. His position as the second son was totally under the authority and the control of the father, who made all the decisions and controlled all the finances for the benefit of the whole family, and the younger son was definitely not happy with that. Now, in any culture, I could see that in any culture, this would be a disrespectful thing to do to your parents. But in that culture, even more so, in a society, in a society where family and parental authority were highly valued, and children were expected to honour and obey their parents, it shows that the son had no concern for his family's welfare and he wished his father was dead. Now, just like in Genesis, when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword to guard the way back to the tree of life, this action by the younger son would have alienated him from the family and the community, never to come back. But at this point, the younger son didn't care about leaving his family. In his mind, he's off towards bigger and better things. In his mind, there's bright lights. It's going to be fun. It's going to be better without the oppressive control of his father. That's what's in his head. Luke 15, 13 says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into the far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. Well, that was quick, wasn't it? And reckless. We can read a bit further down the page that that recklessness involved the buying of the pleasure from prostitutes. It says, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. It's a double whammy here. The son ran out of money and in the providence of God, a famine meant that he couldn't recover. He needed the father. He needed his dad. Why is there so much sickness and poverty in the world? It's meant to point us back to the father. That's what fam famines are meant to do. So he went out and he hired himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. He wanted to eat the pig food, but no one gave him anything. Now, in telling this story to Jews, Jesus is making sure they understood the gravity of how low this son had sunk in running away from his father. This Jew 
in living with pigs, which is a ceremonially unclean animal, had hit rock bottom. There was nothing lower than he could have sunk to. Bear in mind, that's us in our sinful state. When Jesus, wait, sorry, Jesus said, when he came to himself, he said, how many of the father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, I've got this plan, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now there's three parts of repentance found here. Firstly, he came to his senses. He realised his position. This is important. Until you realise where you're heading, you won't ask for God's help or his salvation. When you're struggling, we need to turn to the Lord. The second part of it is that he says, I will arise and go to my father. This younger son who had spent so much time trying to run away from his father because he thought he was oppressive, turned 180 degrees around and decided to go back to the father. The third thing is he threw himself on the mercy of the father. His father is so lavish and so generous that even his servants eat well. That's what that meant to tell us. And that's what, that's what repentance is. It's turning around 180 degrees in your thinking and in your head and head for the Father. Throwing yourself on his mercy, trusting him and him alone. Verse 20 says, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. There's a lot in this verse. God's totally involved in our salvation. If you're a Christian, no matter how you came to Christ, God was involved. He sends the famines so that we realise our desperate situation. And when we come to ourselves, he runs from a long way off. In those days, for a man of a position of, of wealth and standing, to run was very undignified. It's a sign that you lost your dignity and you've lost control. But such is his love for his son, he doesn't care. He hugs him. It, which literally means he fell on his neck and he kisses him. Very undignified. In the events around his crucifixion, Jesus became very undignified. He was flogged within inches of his life. He was forced to carry his cross up the hill. He was spat out. He was jeered at. He was mocked. He suffered as if he had committed all the atrocities of the whole world, past, present and future. Yet, he was sinless. Jesus lost his dignity for us. So the younger son in repentance says to the father, I'm not worthy to be in this family. 
And before he can even finish this premeditated speech he's got about just being a hired servant, his father shows him nothing but love. He will hear nothing about this little speech that's been prepared about being a slave. He finds him without clothes, so he gives him the best robe. He puts shoes on his feet. He puts a ring on his finger. Now, that basically means the wayward son, who should have permanently been banished from the family and the community, now has the full rights again as son. He gave him the checkbook. He's able to spend the family's money again. And then they celebrate. Dad kills the fatted calf. Now, you know, th you know this, the fatted calf is the best meat you'll ever, ever eat. Even better than 120 days in the feedlot, that little fella that's fatted up, that little calf is the best meat you will ever eat. Dad kills that one for him. And he throws a big party. Now his older son, now talk about a way to start a family squabble. Just give one kid something he doesn't deserve. You just try that. World War Three, straight up. The older son was in the field, and as he came and he threw and he drew near the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and he asked what these things meant, and he said to him, "Your brother has come, and your your father has killed a fat and has come home. Your father has killed a fat and calf because he received him back safe and sound, but he was angry." And he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. His, his father went out to him. His father just didn't leave him out there in anger. His father went out to him. But he answered his father, look. Can you see that? He didn't even address him as dad. Look. You, when we start a sentence with look or listen, you know what's going on. No, it's, we're angry. These many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command. And you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not this brother of mine, this son of yours comes home, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. What a head of steam he had. The older son refused to come to the family feast. He was angry about the grace that had been given his brother. How dare he go off and spend the family fortune in demeaning ways and then when he comes home, he should never have been allowed to come home. When he comes home, his dad treats, us, treats him as the better child by throwing him a party. Now the older son, just like the younger son, didn't want the father's love. He just wanted his stuff. He thought he'd earned it. All these years I've served you. I was always obedient, but what do I get? Surely I deserve it. We've all been there, haven't we? I've preached. I've visited sick people. I gave money. I've given other people a better deal. His sin was not so much a lack of joy and celebration. His sin was that he didn't want to be part of the father's family either. He's got no love for his father, which also means he's got no love for his brother. Works the backwards and forwards. So today, the take-home message. The family of God is so important. 
Now this morning I'd like to have spoken a lot more about how as members of God's family we should love one another and we should care for one another. We should visit each other and help each other when we're sick. But this servant attitude, this unconditional love for our brother can only find a spark when we, find, when we understand and find the undeserved nature of our own salvation and our own relationship with God. We won't love our brother until we experience the love of the Father. So, I had four points here today. I hope you found them. It breaks the Father's heart when we rebel against him. And all sin is rebellion against God. Two, he seeks us even through the famines. Even when we're like the self-righteous son. And by the way, I think that sometimes we pendulum swing between the younger son and the older son. We, we do both. Both are wrong. The third thing is, God, through Jesus Christ, restores us to true sonship. Fourth thing, he always invites us to his table and to the feast, to the celebration. So as we um, finish this sermon, we, we move into a time of communion. Um, we think about these things and we think about a feast, and we think about a table. And this morning I want you to think about the connection between two feasts. The feast of the Lord's Supper, the feast of our communion, and the heavenly feast, uh, Revelation 19.9 says in that, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. This feast that we have today, where we celebrate Jesus' death and his resurrection and his sins being carried for us on that cross, our sins being carried by him on the cross, point to the celebration of that when he redeems and he takes his people to himself. So this bread, this bread and this wine represents how we enter the family of God, that his body was broken. Not yet, Harper. Harper, not yet. I was saying to the kids the other day, Communion is a really serious and a really solemn occasion. And, and it says in the Bible in other places how we should never underestimate that. And it's good to teach each other and to teach our kids the respect of that because this is everything in the whole world. This is everything that's valuable. That his body was broken and his blood was shed that our sins would be forgiven and we're put into his family. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you died on the cross, that your son carried our sins for us. Lord, that we trade our sinfulness for your righteousness. As we eat and drink today, this meal, I pray that you would remind us of that. 
and that you would remind us, Lord, of the body that you've put us into, the family that you've put us into. I pray, Lord, that you would just bless our heart for a love for our brother. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please come and uh, take communion and back to your seats and eat in your own time.